0: Sanctuary, today we have a special treat. Uh, no stranger to our community, Father Preston is here. He's going to be speaking to us in just a moment. Uh, for those of you who don't know Father Preston, he is a fellow priest. He's part of our diocese, the Diocese of St. Anthony, and leads a really beautiful, really lovely community in Nashville called Sacrament. So if this is your first time uh, being introduced to Father Preston, again, this is going to be a real treat for you. For those of you who, uh, who know Father Preston well, Uh, You know what you're in for and be sure to stop by and say hi to him and his family who are here today We're so glad that they're all joining us. So welcome Father Preston as he comes Thank you Father Paul. Good morning sanctuary. It is so good to be with you all today and uh, Every time we have the opportunity to come back. This is home for us. This is we're from Tulsa Ashley and I both And so every time we have a chance to be with you all is a special time, a special day. In fact, we just celebrated nine years of living in Nashville after we grew up here in Tulsa. It seems like those nine years have just flown by, (laughs) but uh, we are living out there. And so I send greetings from Sacrament Church, the community that we've planted out there. And just great to be here today. So I have the opportunity to uh, work from home most days. And uh, as many of us are kind of doing a little different now, and uh, my wife Ashley works outside the home about two and a half days a week, and so I'm home most of the time. We have a nine-year-old little girl, Lucy, and then we have now a six-month-old Betty. And so I'm home with them, and I love this opportunity, and it's great. It's really great to be home. Um, But one of the challenging things that I just wasn't prepared for is uh, door-to-door salespeople when you're home during the day. Now, if this is your profession, like it's wonderful and, and great, it's, it's really the sheer volume of salespeople that kind of becomes a problem at some point. Um, at our house, we just have so many people that come by trying to sell all kinds of things. Now, I'm probably an overly nice person, so, so I, I want them to thrive in their career and in their life and so I wanna just at least kind of hear what they're, they're doing and their their life and what they're selling and all these things. But coupled with that, one of the things I hate the most is like comparing different products. Like I just hate that, cell phone companies, internet service, like all of this stuff. I just can't stand it. And it starts to be too much at some point. And you guys know with this, at some point you have to say, I'm sorry, I can't help you right now. Bye, and kind of close the door. There was one particular salesman when we first moved in who was especially challenging. And when he first showed up, when we first moved into the house, he said he was frustrated and exasperated with us immediately. He said that I've been here every day, and you have not been here yet. I saw that you closed several days ago, and you've not been here yet. I'm like, okay. And he's selling an alarm system. And and apparently in this neighborhood, maybe it's true in every neighborhood, there are alarm company wars for like, who's going to descend on that house and get their business. (laughs) So he is aggressive and he's coming by and he kind of wedges his way into our house and he gives us his spiel and tells us all the stuff that we could buy. And Ashley says to him nicely, "Uh, we'll consider that and we'll contact you. (laughs) We'll get back to you. Right? So the next day he has a very distinctive knock and it's very loud and he would come and just knock on the door and every single day until we gave him a decision, he was there at our house. Now, we ultimately decided to go with a way less annoying um, alarm company (laughs) than this one and we thought we were rid of him at that point. But no, he wanted to know what he did wrong and he came and knocked on our door every day until we would tell him what he did wrong. Okay, so what's the point? Uh, The point here is I think when some of us hear this gospel reading today about persistence in prayer, we think this is what we're supposed to do. We think that we're supposed to bug God in the middle of the night, we're supposed to keep knocking on his door, we're supposed to be aggressive and really wedge our way in almost like a salesperson because that's the only way we'll get from God what we want. And I want to suggest today that it is way different than that. And way more complicated than that. Um, I want to suggest that first, um, how Jesus taught us to pray and taught his disciples to pray is important and is significant. First, Jesus' disciples ask him, how should we pray? Teach us to pray. Now, this wasn't necessarily a new practice. Jesus has formed a community around himself of his disciples and also tax collectors and sinners. And they're basically asking, will you give us a form of prayer that roots us in our story as the people of God and also praise the distinctives of this new community that you formed around yourself? In fact, this community of disciples and tax collectors and sinners was kind of an antecedent of the church. It was this community. This is what God does. God calls community around God's self. And so this community is forming around Jesus. And they're searching for this formative practice, this way of praying. And you'll notice in the reading that it says, as John's disciples have, that John's disciples have a particular form of prayer. Will you give us a particular form of prayer? The Lord's Prayer is found in both Luke's gospel today and Matthew's gospel. Matthew's is longer. Luke's version, which we read today, does not have the words, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, although the the words, your kingdom come, imply that. It also does not include the phrase, but rescue us from evil or rescue us from the evil one. But notice first that Jesus gives them a specific form of prayer, not just an attitude of prayer. Sometimes we tend to think that really with prayer, all that ever matters in any form is, is just the attitude, that the form doesn't really matter at all. And it's true that no matter uh, you know if from our heart as we pray to God and we pray spontaneous prayers and we lift up our words to God even if we don't have the right words whatever words that we speak to God that he hears us he responds to us he's close to us. So in that sense in terms of access the right words don't matter. But we're not talking about access here. There is something about how we're formed in prayer where the actual form, the actual words of prayer seem to matter. The form shapes us. Rituals matter. Whatever we do in our life, whatever it is, whatever habit we do over and over again begins to shape us over time. I'm a pretty faithful teeth brusher. Hopefully you guys are as well. Uh, It's a wonderful thing. Um, And my hope is that this regular ritual of teeth brushing (laughs) forms and shapes my teeth or keeps them clean in a particular way over time. It's a ritual. It's a habit. Now, last time I went to the dentist, he told me that I'm a little too much of a go-getter with my teeth brushing, that I brush a little too hard. (laughs) And so I need to adjust that and need to change that. But what we do, those rituals, those habits that we do over and over again, they matter. The old Latin phrase is lex orandi, lex credendi. The rule of worship or the rule of prayer is the rule of belief. That somehow how we pray can actually lead to faith. It changes us. And that also means prayer is something that is learned. Richard Foster writes, Real prayer is something we learn. They, the disciples, had prayed all their lives, and yet something about the quality and quantity of Jesus' praying caused them to see how little they knew about prayer. If their praying was to make any difference in the human scene, there were some things they needed to learn. This form of prayer that Jesus gives is unique in a few different ways. One of them is the address. It wasn't foreign to speak of God as Father in this world, but it was very unique to do a regular form of prayer where God was addressed as Father. In our reading, it is especially unique that we see Jesus, or we see the Father portrayed as both Father and later as friend. These are two relationships, intimate, close relationships. And Jesus desires for his disciples to be formed first by this close relationship with God. And so the address to God matters. But this closeness has only been made a reality because of Jesus. Rowan Williams, Father Paul's friend, says The new way to talk, the new way we talk to God is as Father. And that is the work of the Spirit of Jesus. So for the Christian to pray before all else is to let Jesus' prayer happen in you. We begin by expressing the confidence that we stand where Jesus stands and we can say what Jesus says. Really, that's the definition of all prayer. That's what Rowan Williams says. He says, prayer is letting Jesus pray in you and beginning that lengthy and often very tough process by which our selfish thoughts and ideals and hopes are gradually aligned with His eternal action. There is a reason why the intimacy of address is so unique, why we call God Father, and that's strange and that's odd. It's because this boldness by which we as Christians are taught to pray is almost silly. What did we do that we get to call God Father? What is that about? What gives us the right to speak to God that way? Well, the answer is it is because of Jesus and because of the nature of our loving God revealed in him that we approach the Father as our Father. When we say, hallowed be your name, that's one we might go, okay, what does that mean? Big words or holy be your name. St. Augustine said, we, actually, we are actually praying that we who say this will be sanctified and brought to spiritual maturity by the holy name of God and his grace and mighty works and that we will become sanctified by his grace for our father is already holy in and of himself. In other words, may we be holy by your name, by who you are. May we be sanctified. Many believe that your kingdom come is really central to this entire prayer. Because if we pray where the kingdom of God is present, all of these things that we pray for are true. We have here at the beginning of the prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done, That's part of the Matthew prayer. And then the Matthew prayer has the end. Yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. So it's bracketed by kingdom. Wherever God's kingdom is, God's name is hallowed. God's will is done. We have enough sustenance. God forgives us, and we forgive those who are in debt to us. We are no longer faced with trials. Yet to pray this is also to recognize the ways and the places where the kingdom of God is not fully realized in our world. That there are places where we don't see this in fullness. This is also a way of praying that our wants and our desires align with God's wants. Any needs that we have in prayer are seen through that lens. Give us this day our daily bread is not just about, it's not about securing comfort, but about trusting for our basic needs day by day. Really, the illustration here is uh, manna in the wilderness, that the children of Israel had to trust in God to provide manna for them every single day. They were unable to hoard it, unable to keep it back, but simply to trust that God would provide for their needs daily. Daily. And this suggests that prayer is a daily occurrence, something we do every day as we seek to trust God, that his kingdom would be present in our midst, that our daily needs would be met. Matthew's version of the prayer uses debts and debtors. Luke's version of the prayer uses sins and debt. So it caused people to go, okay, is this talking about sins? Is this talking about financial debts? But it's likely that all of it is true. True when we understand God's forgiveness in our life and we're transformed and we receive that, it marks us as a people of forgiveness. Lead us not into temptation, expresses the desire to be freed from the power of sin and possibly to be protected from the powers of evil in the world. The epistle reading for this Sunday comes from Colossians chapter 2, and verse 8 says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of the world rather than on Christ. Now, commentators are split about, like, what is Paul talking about when he talks about hollow and deceptive philosophies? There was a bunch of hollow and deceptive philosophies in the first century, so what's he referring to? We think he probably had three different kinds of ideas in mind. The first one is this idea of takes you captive. This word takes you captive um, is a word that sounds really, really similar to the word synagogue in Greek. So he's kind of saying, hey, be careful with some of the lure to the synagogue. What's going on there? That's kind of odd for us today. Well, there was a group in the first century that convinced Christians who were Gentiles, so they weren't originally part of the family of God, convincing Gentile Christians that in order to really be Christian, in order to really be a follower of Jesus, you didn't just need to be baptized into the faith. No, in order to really be Christian, you had to be culturally Jewish. You had to follow these certain practices and these certain cultural kind of things and festivals and all of that. And so really being baptized into Christ only gets you halfway. And Paul's saying, no, that's not the thing. (laughs) The thing is that Jesus holds everything together. It's all centered in him. Anything that's Jesus plus is no good. It's not right. That's just going to keep you captive. This is a dominant background in the book of the letter to the Galatians. We see that really, really consistent. And Galatia and Colossae were really close to each other. Paul doesn't want to see them become captive to that. But it wasn't just this group. They're called the Judaizers. There's another um, temptation. And that would be that these Gentile Christians would fall back into paganism, that they would worship the God of the sea and the God of the sun and the gods of fertility and the gods of war. That might be what Paul means by the elemental spiritual forces of this world, that you would turn back to those things when, do you remember, and earlier in Colossians, Paul says, in Jesus, all things were created and all things hold together. He's before all of it. You don't need any of that stuff. That'll just be captivity for you. And then finally, the last group, the last hollow and deceptive philosophy he probably has in mind is the Roman Empire. At this time, there were images of Caesar everywhere in the Roman Empire. He was on the coins. He was in everyone's homes and uh, on the walls and in statues and in the bathhouses and the gymnasiums and everywhere. And the idea was to convince the world that Caesar is our conquering king. In fact, Caesar was called Lord of Lords. King of kings, prince of peace. Because it was said that Caesar brought peace to the world. The only problem with this peace is it came at the end of the sword. You will have peace and succumb to me or else you'll die. So Paul is saying, no, there is something greater and better than that. And all of these hollow and deceptive philosophies are no good. Now today, we might go, you're not necessarily tempted by going back to Jewish cultural practices to make you think that you're a Christian. You may not be tempted by paganism in the same way that they were in the first century. But we have those things. We have those stories that tell us. We have these counterfeits that keep our mind and our heart out of being fully devoted to the one true God. Many of us, I think, are drawn to the allure of one of the two cultural teams in our world. You know what I mean by that? The right or the left. Many of these, both of these teams paint themselves as the only hope of the world. When your life revolves around your political affiliation, your cultural affiliation, everything that comes from your side becomes in your mind good, (laughs) and everything that comes from the other side becomes bad evil. It becomes totalizing, becomes a way that we look at every single issue in our world. Are they on the good side or are they on the evil side? And then it affects our ability to empathize with the other. Why would I empathize with evil? If someone is pure evil, why would I possibly empathize with them? We begin to objectify them as evil and the opposing side rather than human beings created by God in the image of God. So there's that political and cultural temptation today, but also that's not it. We also receive a lot of different messages in our world which speak to us about the good life, the right way to be in the world, the way to measure ourselves, and they seek to draw us in. We're bombarded with images depicting specific body types and styles, And the implicit message is if you don't look like that, you're not attractive and therefore not as valuable. The same is true when it comes to money and status. There's a certain trajectory which typifies the American dream and you got to shoot for that thing. That's what you're going for and anything else is not so good. These are the messages that we receive. But as Christians, we have to learn to kind of deconstruct those messages to see the mythology behind those messages, that really the reason for that, those kind of dreams and, you know, that you need to look a certain way is because these consumer messages are aimed at feeding the machine of large corporations that want you to do certain things. They don't have our best interest in mind. So, we have these big stories. This is how you're to be in the world. This is the good life. This is is really all that life is about. And often, as Christians, we're tempted to kind of wedge in our Christian faith with those totalizing stories. And then, what happens today is there's so many who are not part of the church who know that these totalizing stories exist, they know these big ways of defining the world exist. Postmodern scholars have called them meta narratives, big ways of explaining the world, systems of truth that explain everything. And they look at the world, many outside the church, and they say, Well, isn't Christianity just another one of those? Isn't it just another dominant, oppressive form of truth? Isn't it just another message that says you need to be this way or do this thing? And the sad fact is that many Christians today live like it is. (laughs) Many of us think that our faith is about just convincing everybody that we're right and that we're true and we have the best story. So how is Christianity any better than the propaganda we're fed every day? Is our faith just one more story? Well, at the core of every oppressive empire is violence. So with Caesar, we see that at the end of the sword, it's, I'm going to grow, I'm going to expand, the empire is going to grow, or else. The goal here is to expand, to sustain, and an empire will do that at all costs. That's the only goal. By contrast, the heart of the kingdom of the beloved son is the God who takes violence on himself, who gives himself for the world. This is a kingdom that starts with giving, not with taking. This is not a kingdom that comes from the top down, demanding allegiance, but the God who gives his life for the world. And because of that, this faith, because of who God is, this faith is always others oriented. It's always going to be pointed outwards. The way of Jesus is true and it's good all the way through. It's always generous, and it points us towards others. After Jesus gives his disciples this form of prayer, he follows it with a parable. There's a friend who knocks on the door at midnight wanting bread. And in the house of Jesus' day, the whole family would sleep on the floor next to each other, which is interesting today. They all would sleep on the floor, all next to each other. So if the father of the house woke up in the middle of the night, everybody was woken up. It was an incredible inconvenience. So I'm hearing the knock of that salesman, that alarm salesman on the door in the middle of the night at midnight, right? And so he gets up, and he, um, you get the sense that he goes to the door, and it's this really kind of big inconvenience. But you knew as a family that if somebody knocked on your door at midnight, they probably had a legitimate need. So you should probably listen to what's happening. And in the story, the friend, we should notice this, the friend is not asking for bread for himself, but for a traveler who's in need. So the story is a traveler shows up at this guy's house, the knocker's house, right? Shows up at this guy's house and asks for bread and he doesn't have any bread. So he has a choice. He's like, either I can turn the traveler away or I can go to my friend who I know has bread and I can inconvenience him in the middle of the night, ask him to get up and ask for bread. So he chooses to inconvenience the, bread, the friend with bread for the one who does not have bread. So this parable is about intercessory prayer. It's not about asking for what I want, that if I'm persistent enough and I just bug God enough, God will give me what I want. This is about being consistent and being urgent about the needs of other people. Now, of course, God wants to hear our needs as well, and God responds, but the focus of this story is on the traveler. Now, Jesus imagines an excuse that this guy might make. He says, well, the door's already locked, my children are in bed, I can't get up and give anything. A lot of scholars tell us that a Middle East audience would have laughed at this lame excuse. This is no excuse. It means nothing because at this time uh, in the first century, there were strict laws about hospitality. If you had food and a traveler didn't have food, you were obliged to give them food and shelter. Verse eight, Jesus then says, I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. Now, listen to this. This story is not intended to tell us that God is our sleepy friend, no. In fact, God is not at all like the one who makes the excuse. Jesus tells the parable to communicate that the needs of other people are serious business and prayer for them is serious, urgent business. And even though this friend was resistant and this friend made an excuse, Your heavenly father doesn't make those excuses. He cares for you and he cares for people. In fact, what Jesus is saying is if your cranky neighbor who has turned in from the night and wants you to go away, if he will ultimately respond to this need of this other person, how much more will your heavenly father who loves you respond? This also shows us that prayer is consistent and it's deliberate. It's a conversation with God our father through Jesus Christ. Christian prayer is not just checking boxes. It's not magic. It's not superstition, trying to say the right words or incantations to get God to act. No, that's pagan prayer. This is prayer that is relationship with God, who loves us. And then finally, Jesus speaks of fatherhood. When talking about God as father, of course, we always need to be careful because we tend to import our visions of fatherhood and we put them on God. It's wonderful when, when human fathers, earthly fathers, um, take their cues from, heaven, from our heavenly father, but it doesn't work the other way around. We can't impose that on our heavenly father. But Jesus' example of earthly fathers is to compare and to contrast. So he says, which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? Of course, even evil human fathers will do this. So just like an evil sleepy neighbor will ultimately get up and help a friend collect food for a traveler, evil fathers sometimes desire good things for their children, not evil things for their children or frightening things for their children. But Jesus's point is how much more will our Father in heaven give us what we need? But notice that Luke doesn't say give us what we need. He specifically says our Father will give us the Holy Spirit. It's not just that God will give us good gifts. That's often what we pursue. God will give us his very presence, which is all that we need. So the point of this illustration is that God is good. He's not an enemy who wants to give us bad things. He's our heavenly Father who is good all the way through. This father language is also significant because it would remind the children of Israel of their history. When God declared to Pharaoh that Israel is my son, my firstborn, When Moses was preparing to declare deliverance over the children of Israel, this is what God said through him. Israel is my son, my firstborn. So anytime the people of God hear this idea of God as father, it would bring to mind this declaration that God loves his people. He cares for them as his children. He's the God of the Exodus, the one who sets his children free. This is always God's heart. This morning, we're challenged by the good news of Jesus, that God loves us, that he invites us into relationship with God's self. There are also things in the world which declare other kinds of news. So just as the Colossian church was tempted by these Judaizers that told them you need to have Jesus plus all of these cultural things as well. And they're tempted by paganism that caused them to worship the elemental forces of the world. And they're tempted by the empire, which says that it actually has final authority, but violence is really the only way through. So we're tempted by things. We're tempted by the lure of totalizing political ideologies. We're tempted by consumerism and materialism and other things which we kind of try to fit beside our faith. But we're not called to be... Jesus plus or God plus people, we need to remember that none of those things has our best interest in mind. None of them has forgiven us. Paul will go on later to say that Jesus has disarmed all the false powers, and we have a new baptismal identity. We are living into a better story In fact, verses 6 and 7 of Colossians 2, Paul says, So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. We're part of a story that we're to be rooted in and established in, a story of God's faithfulness. And the practice of living that out is prayer. This is not a top-down oppressive story, but the story of the God who stepped into our world. The disciples understand that prayer is something that needs to be learned, something that forms us in a particular way, and central to this prayer is the address to our Father, The focus of the Lord's Prayer is asking for the kingdom to be fully realized and to align our wants with his kingdom. So we remember today that God is not like the sleepy neighbor who makes excuses. He's a different kind of friend than that. Yet even the sleepy neighbor (laughs) will want to ultimately help the stranger in need. How much more will our God respond as our world is in need and as we pray for those needs to be met? Heavenly Father is not like a wicked dad who would give his kid a snake when they ask for a fish or a scorpion instead of an egg. No, even evil dads sometimes want good gifts for their children. But how much more will our Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit his very presence for us every day? So much of the Lord's prayer is simply trust. It's simply trusting that God is good, that God's king, when God's kingdom is fully realized on earth as it is in heaven, that all will be made right. Because of the competing narratives of our world and the things that we struggle with, it's hard to often trust in that reality. But to this is what we're called. In God's kingdom, all will be well. His name is hallowed. Daily needs are met sins are forgiven, and we're rescued from harm. May it be so. Amen.